You know, there are weddings, lowercase w, and then there are weddings. Do you know what I'm saying? Okay. And if you've ever been to a wedding, capital W, you know what I mean. A number of years ago, Susan and I got to go to a, a, a wedding, and then afterwards was the reception. And this was like the most amazing reception we'd ever been to. They, it was at this renovated historical building in, in, in a large metropolitan city. And it was very cool. It had been renovated. It was made of all of glass. And it was enclosed in, and this glass went up multiple stories all the way to the, to the ceiling, so the light was kind of shining through. And, and we walk in, and immediately we notice the ice sculptures, right? If you have ice sculptures, that's a wedding. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Ice sculptures, massive bouquets of flowers, exquisite hors d'oeuvres. There was live music. It was, it was magical. And then I began to do what I always do in those settings, which is to stuff my face as fast as humanly possible. So I'm, I'm shoveling it in until somebody come, walks up and says, hey, 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 wait, wait just a minute. You might want to slow down there, big guy. And I'm like, why would I want to slow down? Okay, there's hours in front of us. This isn't the, the reception. This is the pre-reception to the actual reception that's happening upstairs. Okay, This is just sort of a taste of what was going to come. And what that was like is a whole other sermon illustration. That was insane. We were in the foyer awaiting the main course. And it doesn't mean that what was going on there in the foyer was insignificant. No, no, it was, it was important. It was priming the pump. And as we've jumped into this series in the Gospel of John, these first 18 verses, what theologians call the prologue of John, is kind of the foyer, or all you French speakers, the foyer, or the foyer, whatever, okay. I'm sure I butchered that, but correct me, correct me later. It's the foyer of the book of John. It's significant in its own right, but it sort of forecasts, gives a foretaste of what the rest of the book is going to be all about. And so last week we tackled the first four verses and looked at this idea that the word has come. This word, Jesus Christ, it's the, it's the defining moment of human history. All of us have a where were you moment when such and such happened, when JFK was assassinated, when the space shuttle exploded, when 9-11 happened, all of us have an association with those things. Well, John said, I got something to top that. I was there when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords of the universe came in the flesh. And so I'm here to announce that. See, John has got all sorts of things to unpack for us in this gospel. But yet he wants to say something else to us in this prologue. He wants to say something else. He wants to remind us that it's not just enough for him to announce this word. The word has become flesh and dwelt among us. That's important, but it's not enough. See, it's, it's not enough for him to announce the word, just like it's not enough for us to recite creeds and catechisms like we just were doing about the word, or to sing songs about the word, or parents tell our kids how important the word is to us. The issue that John wants to press upon us this morning is simply this. Have you received this word? And if you're someone here this morning, oh yeah, of course, Pastor Paul, of course, I've re- have you? Do you know what that means? Do you know what the implications are? See, because John is going to unpack this 
for the rest of the time in this book, receiving the word. And that's, that's our subject matter to this morning, to receive or to not receive. And I'm going to invite Pete and Karen Butler to come and read our scripture passage this morning. As they're coming, I'm going to invite the rest of us to stand and to turn to John 1. They're going to be reading verses 6 through 13. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Please join us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a redeemer. We thank you that you do not want your children enslaved, and in darkness you rescue us, Lord. We are grateful that in your scriptures you provide us a glimpse of what is to come. You are gracious and good. You renew us. No matter how badly we are hurt or how badly we are broken, you're good and gracious to us. Help us now to open our hearts and our eyes. God, in today's teaching, make known to us the path of life and the path into your presence. And we ask this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Folks, I want to remind you when we started this series in John two weeks ago that we talked a lot about John's thesis statement, John's purpose in writing this book. And you don't have to turn there, but let me read again John 20, verse 31. John says, these things, in other words, this thing, these things in my gospel that I'm writing about Jesus, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And the way John the Apostle is going to present himself this morning is sort of like a prosecutor with, with we sort of in the jury box and him compiling his evidence to present to us to prove his case. In fact, if you go through the whole book of John, which we will over a series of weeks, months, and years even, we're going to find that this book, in fact, oftentimes reads like a court document that it's full of all sorts of witnesses and testimonies. There's, there's the witness of Moses and the witness of the scriptures and the disciples. Of course, there's the witness of the signs, all these amazing signs that Jesus is doing. But here, Jesus is going to introduce us to his chief human witness, John the Baptist. And in doing so, he's going to sort of give us a... a, a a kind of a courtroom-like framework to think about what he's doing in this book, what he's doing in this passage. And the first is going to simply be this, that testimony is going to be given. Okay? Testimony is going to be given. And number two, a verdict is going to be rendered. Now understand this, this verdict was not simply for the people of the first century. The Bible is not merely a book of antiquity. 
In fact, John is writing to all, including us, who would read his gospel. He wants to communicate unequivocally for us that, that when we are called to read and study, we, we, we don't study this gospel, we don't do so dispassionately. We don't do so at a distance. We don't do it um, absent or void of some sort of heart relational connection. Because just like with any good prosecutor, John's evidence is going to press us to make a decision. It's going to press us into a, a moment of choice. And that's where we want to work to this morning. So let's meet John the Baptist. And, he, and John, this is the only gospel where John the Baptist is not distinguished as the Baptist. Because, remember, John, in the other gospels, the writers would distinguish John the Baptist versus John the disciple. John was a very common name in, the, in ancient Palestine. But here, John is writing, John the Apostle is writing, so there's no need to distinguish between the two. It's just simply John. And we're going to find out why that's particularly significant. Look at verses 6 and 7. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, when it says that John the Baptist was sent... That should immediately cue us in to think about, just like all the other Old Testament prophets that came before him, John the Baptist was sent by God. And we see all sorts of examples of this, right, with, with Samuel. We see it with, with Isaiah. What does Isaiah say? He stands in the presence of God and he says, here I am, Lord, what? Send me. See, when God wanted to deliver a word, he sent a spokesperson, and here, what, whom Jesus calls the greatest of all the prophets, Jesus says in another gospel that no, no one born of a woman is greater than John. And we have to ask, why would Jesus say that? What made John the Baptist so great? And there, there's two things here. One, one I just want to mention briefly. One, John had the amazing privilege of getting to testify about Jesus in the flesh. Remember, all the other Old Testament prophets died before they saw the fulfillment of the coming of the Messiah. Sometimes horrific deaths, sometimes horrible deaths. But John the Baptist got to testify to the coming of the Anointed One right here and there. And so he was greatly privileged. But there's another reason that John is such a compelling witness. And it has to do with what he testified to. Now, I know we have some lawyers in here, and you're going to email me when I butcher all these Latin words. Okay, I'm about to say, so just, just that's fine, taunt me, send it, whatever. Just, just we, we know that the facts of a case, and, whether, and whatever decision a jury renders in its verdict oftentimes has little to do with whether that crime actually happened or not, okay? And oftentimes, so, so, so whether he did or she did or he didn't or she didn't, that is an objective reality. It is truth. However, we know that a witness, a good witness, can really bolster the testimony and evidence of the cases being presented. And a bad witness, though, can confuse and under, uh, undermine the most compelling case. 
I don't know if you, were, if you saw it recently, but on ESPN 30 for 30 had a five-part series on, on the life of O.J. Simpson and included his trial. And, and such a, for those of you who were, who, were, who were functioning then and alive and well, you, you know how captivating that whole season was in the life of our country. And what's amazing, there, there's two things that are amazing about that trial. One is just the sheer amount of overwhelming evidence that was put on display. The blood and the clothes and the glove and the DNA. And it was just a mound of overwhelming evidence. But yet that case was consistently undermined by terrible witnesses. Do you remember this? Okay. Who can forget Cato Kalin, the long-haired, blonde-haired hippie dude, okay, who was shacking up with O.J. Simpson, okay? Who can forget the crazy, crazy detective Mark Furman, his habitual lies? And it was just this whole circus of just terrible witnesses. And what made them a terrible witness? That's the question. They made it about themselves. See, the trial became about all these other things instead of about the one central thing. Now, what made John the Baptist such an effective witness? And simply this, he knew why he was there to do what he was called to do. He knew that it was his job to bear testimony about Jesus Christ. He was there to prepare the way for people, not give himself a platform for ministry to exalt himself. What does John the Baptist repeatedly say? I must become less? What? So that he becomes more. See, he understood what it says in this text, that he came so that all might believe through him. Guys, what a subtle temptation. Not so subtle sometimes. For those in positions of leadership, whether it's in the home or work or ministry, to feel like success is defined by whether I am successful, by whether people believe in me, by whether people trust in me, John was an amazing witness because he understood that he was not the light. Do, do, you, do you know that about yourself? <laughs> you and I, we're, we're not the light. And it's, it's interesting that the way that John makes this, John the Apostle makes this transition, he goes from talking verses 1 through 5 about the Word, the eternal Word, the incarnate Word, the Word made flesh, the Word from the beginning, the Word that made everything. And then here's, here's how he introduces John the Baptist. Ready? Dun, da, da, da. A man named John. <laughs> okay? A man named Jed. Okay? What, you know, he's just a man. John knew who the light was, and it wasn't about him. You know, I have a, I have a pastor friend who had, had an incredibly gifted son who's in ministry now, but he, he graduated Bible college and was just eager beaver. And this was a guy, incredibly gifted speaker. He could memorize whole books of the Bible. I mean, he, he, was, he, was, a, he was a highly sought-after guy you'd want on your pastoral team. And his dad says, son, here, let me tell you what you need to do you need to go over there and like work. <laughs> okay. Code for a real job, right? Okay. You need to like, you need to like be faithful. You need to pay your bills. You need to get involved in the mundane because son, let me tell you something. You are not going to save the world. Okay. That was excellent, excellent advice. You see humility. We often talk about humility and why it's important. And it is 
Humility is important because God opposes the proud, okay? Loves the humble. It's, it's important because it's an indicator of the health of our soul. But there's a part of humility that we don't often talk about, see? And, and, and this is what is being pointed to in this text. Humility is an acknowledgement that you and I can't save anyone. And because you and I can't save anyone, let us never be the hero of our own stories. Families, who's the hero of your house? Who's, who's, you know, parents, your job is to be a faithful witness to the light. But if you're the light and you position yourself as the light, your kids are in big trouble. Because their souls were never meant to bear the weight of that crushing reality. Or maybe it's the reverse in your home. You're not, you're not the light, but maybe your kids are the light. Maybe they're the heroes. Maybe they're the center of reality. Parents, that will destroy their souls. See, what's, what's compelling about the witness of John is that he knew, I am not the light. And I want you, the reader, to run to that light. Don't run to me. Run to him. See, I think we ought to make a habit of just repeating after ourselves that I am not the light. In fact, we're going to do that right now, okay, as a participation exercise, okay? On the count of three, we're all going to repeat that. Ready? One, two, three. I am not the light. Now, do you believe that? Do you believe that? People don't need more of you. They need more of Jesus. And John the Baptist said, I'm going to get out of the way. In fact, I'm going to go to jail, and I'm going to become less, and I'm going to have my head chopped off so that he can become great for the world. See, that's why John is such a compelling witness. And you got to know, I mean, this whole book, John, John the Apostle also models this for us in this book as we've seen. If you were the BFF of Jesus, which John the Apostle was, laid his head on Jesus' shoulder, took care of Jesus' mom. I mean, like, he was in the inner ring, right? He was right in the middle. I mean, if you were, if you were John and you were writing this book, come on, you just have to slip a little something-something in there about yourself, right? Just like, and then, um, you know, James and I, we called down fire from heaven upon that village, okay? And no, 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 no. No, no, no. He doesn't even mention himself by name. He's just the disciple whom Jesus loved. As we said, that's a sign of utmost humility. I'm just a man. I'm just a man. A crucial part of witness, whether it's to your neighbor or the person you're inviting next week to Easter service or your family, your marriage, your child, is understanding where you have to become less so that Jesus can become more. See, that's the compelling witness that John presents to us. But John the Apostle is not satisfied there. He wants us to move to part two here to wrestle with this witness, to wrestle with this evidence. Verdict rendered. Look at verse nine. Verse nine. Here's what John says about Jesus. He says, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming 
into the world. Now, why, does, why do you think John the Apostle calls this true light? True light. Because we have to, to, to acknowledge that there are many sources of light. Metaphorically, there are many things in, in your life and in my life, in our culture, all around us that will hold themselves out as a source of hope for you, as a source of favor. This job, this relationship, this child, this, this, this investment, this thing, that thing, it, it was no different in the Middle East. There was many sources of light, many, many veins of spiritual thought, this light, that light, any of it will work. But John wants to make something clear that there is only one true light. True meaning authentic, genuine. See, Jesus, we said this last week, Jesus is totally welcome at the postmodern table when he is a light. But when he's the light, the true light, he is no longer welcome. Remember, my back it's 1997 20 years ago was started youth pastoring here and um josh hughes was was in high school and we we took our very first four oaks retreat i think josh skipped that retreat because he was partying or something i'm not sure what he was doing sorry josh anyway first first ever four oaks retreat and you know our middle schoolers are at saint george island right now but let me just tell you we we slummed it when i was youth pastor okay so we were in sewanee somewhere anyway and so one night we 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 played capture the flag, and, and you know when your youth leader like puts on camo and face paint that he is a complete dork. Okay, anyway, so that's what we were doing, and I was hiding out with a, with one of my one of my youth youth groupies there, Josh Fruit, and we we were we were camping out. You know, we had our gloves on, night vision goggles. Not really. Okay, we needed night vision goggles, but but we knew the other team had put their flag right by this light. Okay, and we were like, oh man, we're, we're, we've got this. We're going to like totally outflank them, or we're going to crawl through the woods, and we're going to, this is a retreat, okay? We got it? Okay, 24 people. Anyway, so, so we're crawling through the woods, and we see the light in the distance. And we're crawling and making our way that way, and we just think we are awesome until we get out on the road and realize we are in the next town, okay? We had like completely gone so far off the grid we looked at each other and like, we are never telling anybody about that ever again. So we go back and the game's over and everybody's like, where are you? And see, see, it was a light, but not the true light. Why is Jesus the true light? Now, this is interesting. Why is Jesus the true light? And it says here in the text, it's because Jesus, get, because Jesus is giving light to everyone. That's interesting. Giving light to everyone. What, 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 is, what does John mean there? Guys, the sun came up this morning. And some of you were glad. And some of you were sad, right? Okay. And we know all of you wretches who were glad about this. Okay, you little morning people. You're up at 4.30 with your cup of co- probably Sanka. Okay, with your little cup of coffee. You like the sunrise. You're on the porch. You're whistling a tune. Okay, for all the rest of us normal people, we see the light, we want to stick our head under the pillow, okay, right? But listen, whether you like the light or not, it doesn't change the fact that the sun has come up, and the light demands a response. You see, 
If you're in trouble, you run to a light. If you're hiding, you run away from the light, but you can't be neutral to light. It invites some sort of response. See, that's what, that's what John is saying here. Jesus Christ, like no other person in human history, when he came on the scene, demanded a response. And again, I said this before, you know, Jesus, he's more than welcome to be domesticated among all of our spiritualities. But once we say he's sitting at the head of the table, people can't deal with it. They cannot tolerate it. And the same thing happens in this passage, okay? And John tells us in verses 10 and 11, the first sort of response, okay? First sort of response. Look at verse 10. It says, he was coming into the world, he was giving light to everyone. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now, that phrase, the world he created did not know him, literally means did not recognize. Okay, so what, what, what does that mean, did not recognize? I was at Premier the other day um, on the track, and I was going to say running around the track, but that would be a lie, okay, waddling, okay, on all fours around the track. And I was looking down on the basketball court, and I see a four oakster down there, Jason Hollister. He was at that retreat I was just telling you about a second ago, the one that Josh wasn't at. Anyway, so Jason was there, and, and, and I noticed him because he's got his bald head and all that. We're brothers in that. And so anyway, he's down there on the basketball court. He's playing hoops. So as I'm running around the track, I kind of point down to him, and I start talking to him. And when Jason and I see each other, we kind of like talk smack, right? So I'm just like, I'm pointing at him. I'm taunting him. I'm saying something about his lame jump shot and and all that. And then as I get closer to him, I have this horrifying realization, it's not Jason, okay? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, blah, whatever. My name, my, yeah, my name is uh, John Stewart. I'll see you later. Anyway, I was, I was like, I wanted to run as fast, fast as I could. That's not what the text means, okay, in terms of recognition that way, okay? What the term means is when a king decides to recognize someone. See, when the king recognizes you, what does he do? Well, you get to come in and sit with me. You get to entreat with me. You become an intimate. We exchange conversation. We talk. You make your request. See, the king recognizes. The chair recognizes. See, it's, it's a willful decision to invite in. And it says that Jesus, the world he made, he was not at home. The world said, thank you, but no thank you. They wouldn't even allow him in the room that he had designed. Even worse, look at verse 11. It says, Jesus was an enemy to his own people. I think it's referring here to the Jewish nation, that Jesus came first to Israel, then to the Gentiles. And it says that Jesus, even more hurtfully, was not even welcome in his own home. There was, there was literally no hospitality for him. He wasn't recognized. A movie we saw a number of months ago called The Woman in Gold. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's about a, a family that was 
in 1930s Austria, living in Vienna, Jewish family, wealthy family. And as the Nazis began to take over, they would begin to confiscate all the earthly goods of these Jewish families, their houses and their instruments and their possessions and their jewels and their paintings. And there was a particular painting that belonged to this family called The Woman in Gold. It was, it was of an ant that was painted at the turn of the century, 1900s, and given to this family and had come down to this particular woman, okay, that the story is about, Dell, I think, um, this was the story is about, and, and it was given to her, but then at the height of the Nazi power, it was stripped away. So they, they stole, the Nazis stole that painting, they stole other paintings, they kicked them out of their home. And the movie is about this 60-year odyssey to try to recover that painting. True story. And one of the most poignant scenes of the movie is when she comes in to this world-famous museum in Vienna, Austria, and looks up, and there is the painting. The last time she had seen that painting was 60 years before, and it was hanging in her house. It belonged to her. And what a surreal feeling to know that belongs to me, but yet I am not welcome to take it. It's been taken from me. I'm, I'm literally a stranger to my own possessions. See, that's what John is driving out here. That Jesus came, the light was shining to everyone, but the world he created, the people he came to minister to and to save, rejected him. Now, we could end, or John could have ended the passage right there, and that is a dark place. That is a dark place. That the Son of God came into the world, but his own did not receive him. But that's not where John stops. Because it's much less about what happened then than what happens right here, right now, today, with you and with me. Because here's how John encapsulates the end of his presentation of the evidence. And it's the most wonderful word, but, but, but. In other words, for them, yes, but for you, listen. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, receive is synonymous for John in his gospel with believe. We talked about how John wants everyone to believe. Well, believe and receive, in John's language here, are, are identical. They are the same. And so it's really, really important because we have so many misconceptions about what it means to believe in something. We're coming up on Easter. Do you believe in the Easter bunny? Right? That, that's, that's kind of the level sometimes we function with these things. John, if we understand what John means by receive, then we'll understand what he means by believe. To receive is the exact opposite of to not recognize. When you receive someone, what do you do? You make a place for them in your home. You make a place for them in, their, in your heart. You take them into your confidence. You make them your intimate. See, 
There's two ways that the Bible uses this word believe in the scriptures. One is in the noun form, and it always means an affirmation of belief, like we just did a minute ago during worship. An affirmation of belief. Or, 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 or the Christ has been delivered once and all for the saints. Okay? So, so there, there's this idea of noun of our belief, our statement of faith. That's not the way John uses the word believe. See, this is in verb form. And it denotes this idea of active relational trust. Have you received Christ? Are you receiving Christ? Is he welcome in your home? Is he welcome in your heart? Does he have intimate access to all the hard messy places see receiving means believing and when it says that when we, when we receive him we believe in his name remember that's not merely a designation or a, or a title name in this context means the real character of the person themselves so in the movie braveheart william wallace is in the process of trying to get all the clans in scotland to come together to fight against edward longshanks of england but he's having a hard time mobilizing all these clans because they don't want to fight for some nondescript, nameless entity called Scotland. No, no, no. They wanted to fight under the banner of their particular family or their clan. Now, why is that? Because, see, their, their clan or their lord provided them with land, with safety, with homes, with community see they they that's what when they fought for mcgregor or whatever irish name they weren't fighting for simply a banner they were entrusting themselves to that lord you see this is what john is trying to impress upon us believing in jesus means receiving him trusting in him yielding to his allegiance, acknowledging his claims, confessing him with gratitude. And those who receive him, what does he say here? He gives the right or the claim to be part of his family. Now, John 3 is going to tell us much more about this new birth that, that John is referring to here. But I think he, he introduces this idea of being born of God to communicate something to us. Something very profound. Folks, being a child of God has nothing to do with your racial connections. Being a child of God has nothing to do with your national connections. Being a child of God has nothing to do with your family connections. Teenagers, please hear me here. Young adults, you do not inherit your faith from your family. Your faith is not an heirloom given to you that you stick in your drawer to be rediscovered one day. That's not how faith works. Faith comes by receiving. Faith comes by trusting. Faith comes by giving Jesus sway over your hearts and lives. We say, Pastor Paul, I, I, I know I'm a Christian. I, I know that I'm trusting in Jesus Christ. And remember, we said that John wrote this passage not just so that you believe, but that you, will be, that you will continue to believe, that you will be strengthened in your face. And so here's a question for all of us. 
Does, where does Jesus not have a welcome reception in your heart today? Where, where are the places in your life where you sort of put the police tape and cordoned off certain areas and said, Jesus, you are, I receive you here and here and here, but boy, this one, I'm not, you're not, uh-uh, that's, that's too risky. You're not touching that area, Jesus. And Jesus says, but to as many as received him, he gave them the right to become children of God. Folks, I hope that message doesn't grow old to you because it's John's message from start to finish. Every week is an opportunity for a soul audit, S-O-U-L. Not, not to condemn us, Remember, Jesus has not come to the world to condemn the world. But it gives us an opportunity to respond to the light. You see, as we come to texts like this, as we examine our hearts, as we, and all of us, we know there's areas where, we, where God does not have, Jesus does not have access to our inmost being. But his light is shining, which means every one of us has this choice. Do I run from the light? Out of shame, embarrassment, guilt, condemnation, or, 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 and this is the good news, or do I run to the light? And it seems so counterintuitive. Why would I run to the light? I'll be exposed. And John says, that's the whole point. Because when we come to the light, we find mercy and grace for our time of need. So the question this morning is, what will you do? with the evidence that John has laid out. Because there is a promise here to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You know, when we come to the table, that's, that's exactly what we're doing every week. We're saying, God, let your word search me, let your Holy Spirit search me. And as you find yourself exposed today, I invite you, John invites you, to come to the true light, the only light that gives life. Jesus Christ died for you. He died for me so that we could have life, eternal life, and joy with him.